0: If you would now take a copy of God's Word, if you're using uh, one of the Bibles in the rack, you'll want to turn to page 869. This morning we are looking at Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, as we are continuing our series here on Sunday mornings this summer, to seek and to save Jesus and sinners in Luke's gospel. And if you weren't here last week, what we're looking at on uh, these Sundays here, the end of June and July into early August, are selections from Luke's gospel that are unique to his gospel. And these are teachings, encounters of Jesus with sinners that show us his greatness and the wonder of his glory and grace. Last week, we looked at Jesus and the sinful woman who was washing his feet with tears um, at a Pharisee's house, and how the surprise of that story, Luke wants us to teach us something about Christ by surprising us that it's not the Pharisee, but this notorious sinful woman that is justified before God and who loves the Savior. The surprise in our story today, um, it's not surprising to many of us because this is a familiar parable. It is unique to Luke's gospel. It's been called the Good Samaritan. And to this day, there are mercy ministries that carry that name, Samaritan. Um, so the surprise to us is, is, is lost if you're familiar with the church and have been around the Bible in your life or Sunday school. Um, but Jesus' first audience and to the lawyer he's addressing this parable to, it is a great surprise that the Samaritan is the hero of the story. So we have a lot to consider this morning. Before we uh, hear God's word read and preached, let's ask for his help in prayer. Please join me in praying this morning again. Great are you, Lord, and greatly to be praised. Your greatness is unsearchable, One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Your glorious splendor, your majesty, your wondrous works, help us to meditate on these things this morning. And so we ask that the words of our mouths and the meditation of our heart would be pleasing to you. I ask as your servant that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing to you. Lord, we give thanks that you are near to all who call upon you, who call upon you in truth. So by your Spirit's help, may we call upon you in truth and may you be near to us that we might glorify Jesus Christ and grow in his grace. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Hear the word of God from Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25 through verse 37. And behold... the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Amen. And that ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. Well, history repeats itself. One of the things that we see among Christians is that every generation faces the the challenge of contextualizing the gospel in their day. And so there is a, a constant, if you would, almost temptation to update, update the Christian faith to fit the current cultural moment. We see it happen over and over again in church history. About a century ago, there were many who looked to adapt Christianity for the modern age. And there uh, initial strategy, the great effort among uh, biblical scholars and theologians was the effort to demythologize the Bible to fit the needs of modern man. Because they saw all this supernatural stuff in the Bible and said, well, we don't need that today. Um, so, but there is some good things that man needs to hear. One critical New Testament scholar famously said, and I quote, we cannot use electric lights and radios And in the event of illness, avail ourselves of modern medical and clinical means. At the same time, believe in the spirit and wonder world of the New Testament. Rudolf Bultmann said that. Just think if he lived today in which in your pocket, most of you have a video camera, computer, do-it-all device that basically runs your life and can provide all the conveniences of the modern world. Many were seeking to do away with the supernatural stuff of Christianity, but they recognized that there was some good stuff in the Bible, some ethics. And so what do you lose when you lose the supernatural stuff? Well, you lose the virgin birth, the resurrection. You lose the means of atonement that God has provided. You lose the gospel, the good news. And so you have to find some other good news, some other warrant, some other reason for the church to exist forgetting that there is no gospel apart from the supernatural gospel. So what was the temptation to replace it with? Well, taking the ethics of Scripture and then saying, we're not too concerned about salvation in eternity, but deliverance here and now. Salvation of humanity through service. Focusing on the ethical teachings of Jesus to make this world a better place. This has been labeled and It's become common to refer to this as the social gospel. And the early proponents of it, they gave it the name, the social gospel. And what we see is that every generation is tempted to replace the gospel with another gospel. And in our day, some sort of social gospel. What does a social gospel mean? Simple definition, it's a gospel that prioritizes social reform instead of preaching the necessity of faith in Christ and repentance in order to be saved from the judgment our sins deserve. The social gospel recognizes evil and sin, but the solution is not a savior who enters the world to rescue sinners. It is humanity doing our best to care for one another and make this world a better place. Now, to be sure, we believe that if Christians are living out the ethics of scripture, we will have a reforming effect on our community. The problem is that no one can truly live out the Christian ethic apart from Christian conversion, supernaturally wrought by the working of the Spirit through the Word of God. In encountering this and facing this in his day, Jay Gresham Machen has some helpful words for us. He says this, and I quote, Whenever any hope is held out to lost humanity from the so-called ethical portions of the Bible apart from its great redemptive core then the Bible is represented as saying the direct opposite of what it really says. Whenever you hold out the ethical portions of the Scripture and say, here is the answer to all of man's problems, but it's divorced from redemption, then you have twisted what the Scripture teaches. Our passage is a favorite of the social gospel, and it remains today for many It is a great text for them on how that we are to be generous to those in need. But in reality, they really don't see what Jesus is pressing on us here. And they are advocating nothing more than Boy Scout philanthropy. It's a classic example of misinterpreting a text by focusing on the ethical and missing the redemptive core. There is an ethic that is prescribed here, but the prescription is not the solution. This prescription is intended to show us our need for a savior, our need for redemption. So in verses 25 through 28, I want us to consider the requirement for life. And then in verses 29 through 37, the remainder, the rationale that leads to false assurance. And then we'll close concerning the rule of life for the rescued and redeemed. The rule of life for the rescued and redeemed. First, the requirement of life. If you look back there in verse 25, a lawyer stood up. Now the teacher would sit and Jesus, he addresses his teacher as rabbi. And so you would stand with your question. And so apparently Jesus was teaching and this lawyer, and by lawyer, don't think guy on the billboard saying, call if you have an injury, you know, you're struck by an 18-wheeler. Not that type of lawyer, not an attorney, someone who studied for the bar, but a lawyer who specializes in studying God's law. Is someone who would be an interpreter of Scripture. Some, something of a theologian in his day. And a lawyer stands up and he poses what is the most important theological question that anyone can ask and that we all should ask. What does someone need to do to inherit eternal life? Right question. But Luke lets us know he's done it with the wrong motive. He's done it with the wrong motive. Well, first think about why is it the right question? Well, we should be concerned about eternal life. That should be the pressing question on every person. What happens after you die? If you're given a long life, it pales in light of, eternity. And what will you say to your creator when you face him? Well, this man has a good answer. Jesus, knowing this man is a lawyer, then turns the argument to him and says, you're someone who studies God's law. How do you see it? What's written in it? And so this man, he gives the right answer. He knows his Bible. He quotes Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 18, combining two commands, and he summarizes what we come to describe as the first and second great commandment, that it is the summary of the moral law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. The first part from Deuteronomy 6 The Shema that the Jews recited, the second part from Leviticus. And Jesus affirms him, you know your Bible. That is the correct answer. And what does Jesus tell him? You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Good so far, except we got to remember what Luke told us there in the first verse. And a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. That's a terrifying piece of information showing us the motive of this man's heart and bringing this question before Jesus. No, he's, he's familiar with the theological discussion. He knows his Bible very well. He cites it on point. And yet, the motive behind it is he's trying to find fault in Jesus. Maybe Jesus has just got done teaching and he's trying to embarrass him. Maybe he's trying to make sure that the people listening aren't going to follow Jesus. Jesus. Whatever it is, he's testing Jesus. It's a terrible motive. Here he is. He should be terrified that he knows what God requires of him. He's able to affirm it, but it's something of theological sport for him, trying to better Jesus. And Jesus has a perfect counter move. He says, You're right. Now go do it. Go do it. There's two things that are really terrifying here. One is someone who knows the right answers, but doesn't seem gripped by them. He's playing Bible games with Jesus. Richard Booz tells a story about engaging someone who is known as a cynical theologian when speaking at the University of Durham. And so the theologian was an atheist. I know, a theologian who's an atheist. So the obvious answer is when you're engaging, saying, why theology? And that's what Richard asked him. And this was the man's reply. It amuses me. It amuses me. It was a game. It was something theoretical and something he found delight in just saying, oh, look what these silly people think about God. Now, I know... That's hopefully not anyone who's a, a member of this church. And if you're a guest here, if that's, if that's you, we're glad that you're here. But don't you see how terrifying that is in light of eternity? To deal with how does someone inherit eternal life? Not sincerely, but to test Jesus? No, we don't want to be like that cynical theologian. We want to be more like Bunyan's Pilgrim in Pilgrim's Progress who knows The burden of sin and carrying it on his back and the fear of judgment to come flees the city of destruction, leaving all he knows behind with his fingers in his ear, crying life, life eternal. May that be us. May we not become inoculated to the idea of eternity, the idea of our sin and the wrath of God rightly poured out against our sin. May we flee to Christ. That's the first terrifying thing here when we see the requirement for life in verses 25 to 28. There's another terrifying thing here. You know what it is? It's that Jesus says, you're right. You're right. Go do this and live. Why is that terrifying? Well, you and I, some of us in here, we probably, we want to, to make Jesus' answer very like evangelical and very Protestant. And we try to figure out to somehow do our maneuver and saying, well, if you believe the gospel, then you will do these things and this will be the fruit of your life. And that is true, that if you've been redeemed, this will be the fruit of your life, love for God and love for neighbor. But that's not Jesus' point right here. Jesus' point right here is saying, yeah, that's the moral law and God's promise stands behind it. If you obey it, there's life. That's what is confirmed in the Westminster Larger Catechism that those who keep the moral law, the moral law being the declaration of God's will to mankind, that God has given it to us with a promise, keep it and life will come. See, the guy had the right idea that even his obedience would mean he is inheriting eternal life, that there is a gift of eternal life. But he thought, if I do this, I'll receive this gift. And Jesus affirms him. But the problem for us is that it's not kind of obedience that merits life but it's perfect constant perpetual obedience to the first and second commandment the great commandments to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself this man when Jesus affirms him of giving the right answer he should have stopped the conversation there should have been no follow up question and should have said Have mercy on me, a sinner. But instead, he has an inquisitive question, a follow-up. And that brings us to the second thing. And we see that in verses 29 through 37, the rationale that leads to false assurance. This man thinks he's testing Jesus because he's assured of what he thinks his place in God's kingdom. He's somehow found assurance of himself that he is one of these inheritors of eternal life. And this rationale is reflected in his follow-up question. Who is my neighbor? In verse 29. Now this is related to the theological discussion of his day. And different Jews had different interpretations of who is your neighbor. And there was a, a spectrum. But typically it would be the Jew is your neighbor and you are obligated to love your fellow Jew. But those outside of your people, those outside of the covenant, those are your enemies and you are obligated to hate your enemies. And so this man wants to see how Jesus will respond to that. Where does he fall? Some see in the Pharisees that the Pharisee Pharisees said, well, not all Jews are my neighbor. The Pharisees are my neighbors because these are the, the Jews who are striving for the law of God. So where does this lawyer stand? Well, we don't exactly know, but we get the idea of what his rationale is. He's not trembling that this is what's required to inherit eternal life because he's he's figured out how I can keep the law by lessening the law, by narrowing the law, by putting a circle around it. And so how does Jesus respond? Jesus responds with the parable of the good Samaritan. And so here is an ethic for compassion and love But now we see the context is that the purpose of the parable is saying, this is how you come up short. This is how you fail to merit life. And so how does Jesus tell the story? Well, he picked something that would have been very vivid to his audience and to this lawyer, the road to Jericho from Jerusalem. It was approximately a 17-mile stretch. And they say that they go down from Jerusalem because Jerusalem was seven, several thousand uh, miles above sea level than Jericho was. It was the closest or shortest route between the two cities. And it was traveled often, but it was a treacherous route. It was dangerous. It was winding through, through different valleys and through the mountains. And what the scenario was is that there were many places that the vulnerable traveler was in danger of being attacked by robbers. And so when Jesus begins this parable, it's almost like he's just ripping something that would have been in the headlines. It would have been a a lead story. Another man beaten, killed by robbers at such and such stretch of Jericho Road. Avoid this corner of Jericho Road, you know, while there's this happening. And so Jesus paints a picture that everyone relates to, and then he picks out what would have been two heroes for the Jews, the priests and the Levites. The priests being the descendants of Aaron, the Levites being the descendants of Levi that were in charge of the the temple ministry, the temple ritual. The priests being in charge, the Levites serving with them. And it was common for priests and Levites to make this trip because Jericho was known as a place where many priests live. And so when they were done with their priestly duty, they would head back home to Jericho. And so the, the first priest comes. Now, there's one person who, in the story that, to us, reading the, the passage may not be clearly identified, and that's the man lying half dead. But the Samaritan is identified, the priest and the Levite, the lawyer is meant to see himself, his fellow Jew, there lying half dead. So what does this priest do when he sees his fellow Jew? Well, he avoids him and moves out the way. Maybe maybe he's thinking, we don't want to speculate too much of what's going on here. Luke doesn't tell us. But I think just looking at the context, this is dangerous. This man is almost dead. I don't know if I can help him. I don't know if he's going to live. I have an important duty as a priest. I have an important role. I can serve others. Though I'm I'm meant to lead in compassion as part of my role in the covenant community, this this man's too far gone. And if I stop to help him, well, I'm vulnerable to robbers too. Maybe. Maybe that's in his mind. And that could be quite reasonable. This man seems to be beyond repair potentially. and So he passes by his fellow Jew. The Levite does the same. And the text gives us the impression that the Levite actually came closer to him. When he came to the place, he's right there upon him. And he does the same. So in the beginning of this parable, what is Jesus doing with this lawyer? He's saying, okay, you think that in order to merit life, you have to love your fellow Jew? Well, the best of the Jews don't even do that. The best of the Jews come up short in what this law would require, loving your fellow man. They can't keep the commandment. But then Jesus presses and he says, no, but you, you don't understand who your neighbor is. Your neighbor is, is everyone. And how does Jesus do this? Well, he then brings a Samaritan on the road. And as soon as the word comes out of his mouth, this lawyer, when he hears Jesus say, a Samaritan, he cringes. Samaritans were hated by Jews and Jews hated Samaritans. Samaritans claimed lineage from the northern ten tribes of Israel. But it's a mixed history. At some point, they intermarriage there in the north. And at some point, they established a different ritual of worship on their own mountain and sacrifices. They only held to part of the Old Testament scriptures. The Jews saw them as half-breeds, as syncretists, And they had nothing to do with them. And the Samaritans felt the same way in large part about Jews. That's part of the shocking surprise of the Samaritan being the hero here in the story. Think about it. You go to Israel right now, modern Israel. And you sit and you're given the opportunity to teach a Bible class. And you say, well, let me tell you the parable of the good Palestinian. You'd be lucky to probably make it out of the room alive. Or you cross over and you're given the opportunity to teach and you say, let me tell you the parable of the good Israeli. That's the tension that is here. That is the vitriol. And Jesus is using this to say, Not only have you not positively loved your neighbor, dear lawyer, but you've hated your neighbor to the north. Jesus is pointing out the sin of prejudice, the sin of racism to this man. And as an aside, it's important for us here to recognize here that there are those in our day who would say Christianity that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, the Christ, the Lord, and that you must come to him personally and be converted and follow him and place your trust in him, they would say that just undermines racism in our day. Well, here Jesus says, no, that is an abuse of any in the Christian religion who would do that. Jesus is pointing out this man's prejudice towards the Samaritans, his hatred towards them, and he is condemning it He's condemning said, This is your neighbor in whom you are to love and to be loved by and to receive love from. We cannot stand by and let others accuse God's holy word of supporting racism. And then those who would twist God's word to cover their racism, we have to point them to the example of Jesus, here pointed out in the Good Samaritan. And you say, well, wait, that's Jesus, but what about the Old Testament? Well, here Jesus is expounding the Old Testament law and saying the Old Testament law requires you to love all your neighbors, all made in the image of God. This is what Jesus is pressing on this man. J.C. Rollins said, clear knowledge of the head when accompanied by impenitence of heart is the most dangerous state of the soul. This man thinks he's rationalized. I have met this commandment, but Jesus is showing him his sin. He's showing his impenitent heart. Jesus is looking to lead his conscience to see his need for a savior. So this parable does teach that true love for neighbor is rare. It does teach that we are to love all of our neighbor's. A biblical definition we could say of the sin of racism is that we as Christians, we don't look outside the scriptures for our definition for what it is. It's that we say the sin of racism is not loving our neighbor based on their differences. It's saying that they're not worthy or we are unwilling to, whether because of their ethnicity or their race. It shows who we are to love as neighbors, all those made in the image of God. But that love is not mere sentiment. It is love in action. Remember the words of James when he says, look, don't just tell your brother who's without a coat and hungry, be warmed and filled on this cold winter night. You're starving, be warmed and filled, go on your way. No, that's not the love of God towards others. It's love in action. And so this Samaritan gives sacrificial love, getting off of his animal." giving of his own resources and expense, pouring the the wine and the oil on his wounds to disinfect and to help begin the healing process. Think about it. The man is bloodied and half naked. And what it would have taken him lying half dead to embrace him in his arms. A Samaritan grabbing a Jew, a man who probably hated him and placing him on his own animal and holding him there and walking along No longer can he ride off quickly if robbers approach, but now he is more vulnerable than he was before, bringing him to the end, paying for his stay, paying for his care, paying for his food, providing enough, and then if he needed more on his way back, this man shrewdly and prudently would cover the rest of the man's expenses. There is nothing the Samaritan is receiving from this man. It's all giving. The compassion is one way. Nothing is earned, nothing is deserved. And he pours out. It's love and action, compassion. And this parable teaches that for us to obey the commandment to love, it's impossible. Our best efforts will come up short. You and I know that each of us, we aspire to be generous and compassionate and to serve. But oftentimes, we only love when it's convenient. Oftentimes, we love with mixed motives. We even love the ones we, we desperately love with mixed motives. Our spouses, our kids. Our love is tainted by sin and therefore it's not the perfect love demanded by God that merits eternal life. No, it's not. Ralph Davis, an Old Testament scholar and longtime pastor, shared a story from his own life as a pastor in the, the Maryland uh, area, and he said it was a Saturday. And Saturdays and Sundays are, are different for pastors. Saturdays, they're, they're not just for cutting grass and relaxing and uh, enjoying the ball game, if you would. They're, you're, you're thinking about Sunday. And so he's thinking about Sunday, and then he gets a call from the church secretary and said, hey, one of the members is in the hospital across town. Did you want to visit him? And he shares, well, no. He didn't say that, of course, but he's thinking, no, I don't want to visit him. But then he thought, well, what would this member think of me if I don't show up at the hospital? And so he went. He wanted the member to think that he loved and cared, but by his own confession, it was mixed motives. Mixed motives. And so Ralph Davis, when he's teaching this parable, he says, The Good Samaritan is bad news, and he nails it. It's bad news. It's bad news for the lawyer. Jesus, he says, Go and do this. The verb is in the present tense. It's not do this once, it's as long as you're living, live like this. And that's the standard. It's bad news. It's condemning. We should all sit under it terrified. So, where is the grace in this passage? well it's a, it's a terrifying grace it's showing us where we come up short exposing our sin exposing our false assurance the way that we have rationalized the we're okay we're not that bad jesus is applying the law to show this lawyer his sin this is one of the uses of the law that calvin identifies in his institutes of the christian religion religion. The law here, first and foremost, the priority is to convict us each of sin. That's the first use of the law. Now, we want to jump to maybe, when we look at this, the civil use of the law, the second use of the law, where God's moral law will restrain evil in society. And there's something of that in the the social gospel. But it still leaves evil with unchanged hearts. And we've seen how that works out. But there's also a third use of the law. The law is presented to us as believers to conform us to the image of Christ. Convict of sin, civil. And lastly, I want us to consider the law to conform us to the image of Christ. It is a guide for the regenerate, a guide for those in the covenant community, a guide for those who claim to be disciples of Jesus. It's the rule of life for the redeemed and for the rescued. It's how, now that we have life from the Redeemer, we are to live in this fallen world. But we gotta get things in order first. We gotta recognize the redemptive core that is in this parable before we pursue the ethic held out there. Now, this isn't an allegory. And throughout church history, if it's been spun by the social gospel, it's also been, has a a longer pedigree of being read as an allegory. Um, It's not. And esteemed uh, doctors of the church for many centuries have found allegory, and even St. Augustine did. But even though it's not an allegory, you're not meant to overanalyze and spiritualize every person in the parable. You're supposed to take it as Jesus' teaching. We can't help but in the person represented as the Good Samaritan to see the wonder and the love of our Savior. I see our Savior in the true and perfect good Samaritan. No one has perfectly kept the first or second great commandment but Jesus and Jesus alone. And no one has loved us in our wretched condition like Jesus and Jesus alone. We had nothing to offer him. and Yet while we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were his enemies, this is how he loved us so. So as recipients of compassion, we then extend compassion And we follow Christ as our guide to compassion. What is the lawyer's great flaw? Here, part of what's happening for this lawyer is that he's looking at others and he says, who is my neighbor, object? Is this person, are they my neighbor, are they my neighbor, are they my neighbor? And Jesus, when he comes around to it, he makes the subject neighbor. He says, which of them proved to be a neighbor? And he must answer, the one who showed him mercy. What is Jesus getting at? And what can help us in our sanctification as believers is that treat all as your neighbor and then ask yourself the hard question. Am I being a neighbor like this Samaritan? Jesus points the man towards his own heart and asks him to evaluate, to look at it. And what does this do? Well, it sets apart the church as a place of grace. That is one of the great flaws that you become very apparent with soon if you dive into the social gospel. Where's the grace? There is no grace. You can only do more. You can only do more. But when the grace of God has changed your heart and life, by your service and compassion, we adorn the gospel with our good fruit and our good works. We serve and we point others to Jesus. It demonstrates that you and I belong to Christ. Remember, John said that in 1 John, in 1 John, that how could you claim to love God whom you can't see, but you don't love your brothers whom you can see? Well, when we do love and compassion and extend it to one another, it demonstrates to a watching world that's hurting and dying on the Jericho road that something is different about these people, and what is different about them is that they've been saved by Jesus and they love one another. That's what Jesus said of Himself that they would see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. So, earlier today in the service, you heard an announcement about our Give Serve initiative. We're not schizophrenic, where we preach the gospel on Sundays, but then on other days, the Christian message is, is just about serving and trying to make this world a better place. No, we go out and serve as the example of our savior, but then we go, we're going out saying, our hope isn't in our service to the world. We go serve the world because we have hope. And in our service, we are pointing others. Because we, in and of ourselves, do not have enough resources, time, money, or manpower to make a dent in the darkness. But Christ, Christ is powerful. And so is his gospel. That it can change neighborhoods, families, sinners. And he comes to us with compassion. And those who have been rescued by the Savior, following his service becomes our rule of life for his glory. We endeavor to love one another and to love our neighbor as we have been loved, so that the gospel will be glorious in the eyes of all. Amen. Let's ask God's blessing on the preaching of his word. Would you pray with me again this morning? Our heavenly Father, We have not loved you with our all, and we certainly haven't loved our neighbor as ourselves. But you have loved us. You have loved us so much that you have given your son for us. And rescued by his grace, you have poured your love in our hearts by your Holy Spirit. So help us to walk in it. Help us to live it out. Help us to go forth and present no one or anything apart from Christ as a solution to man's problems. But may we boldly in our words and our actions testify that we are great sinners, but Jesus is a greater Savior. We ask this all in his name. Amen.